Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Lecture Theatre. With us today we have Jessica Hintry, an assistant professor of history at Nanyang Technological University. Jessica's work focuses on the intersection of gender, sexuality, and empire. In the latest book, Governing Gender and Sexuality in Colonial India, was published in April. Thank you for being with us, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So Jessica, tell us more about your life story. How did you become a historian? <laughs> um, so I guess I became a historian because I was always really interested in history. And, you know, I did history at school. And I, unlike many people, I actually loved history at school. <laughs> so when I went to university, um, yeah, history subjects were the ones that I enjoyed the most. Um, I tried to do art history, but I wasn't very good at it. So, um, yeah, I just ended up doing history. And I guess I was always interested in Asian history, but um, over time became more interested in South Asian history in particular. Um, and why, why was that? I think in part because I had read a lot of, um, you know, Indian literature in English um, when I was a teenager um, and when I was in university. So Vikram Seth and, you know, um, Amitabh Kosh and stuff like that. And I think that, to be honest, I think that was a large part of it. Um, and I was interested in colonialism and race um, and so British Empire and India is so interesting. Um, and as a feminist, I was interested in gender and sexuality in particular. Um, so, yeah, I guess my research interests brought together all those things. So you moved to Singapore six years ago from Australia mm -hmm. after doing a PhD and, and undergraduate work there. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's different studying history in those two countries? I mean, and they were both part of the British Empire, mm -hmm. but, but in a very different way. So how has that experience differed or converged? So I think, um, I mean, moving to Singapore, I think has provided, I mean, I think that was interesting in terms of not being based in India, but be, being based in another place where there's post-colonial, um, you know, rep repercussions, I guess, of colonial governance of gender and sexuality um, in very similar ways to in India and in some different ways as well. Um, and I think to think more broadly about empire, gender and sexuality as well, um, you know, I, I think it helped me to think more broadly, right? Um, in terms of studying, how studying is different in, in Australia than in Singapore, I mean, in both places I wasn't studying the place where yes. I was, I was <laughs> yes. living. So um, in that respect, I think, I, I don't... I think you you get then some interesting comparisons coming mm -hmm. from different directions. I mean, something I'm very interested in but haven't worked on myself is the ways that um, I you know ideas about colonial governance, ideas about and colonial knowledge around gender and sexuality circulated um, both within non-settler colonies and across. Settler and non-settler uh, okay. colonies, right? But yeah. Okay. yeah. So let's jump right into your your new book. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about the Hijra community in India, right? Which we might 
broadly described as kind of transgender. So tell us more about that community and the big arguments that you're making. In terms of, what, I mean, one of the difficulties in the book that I had to deal with is historically how um, to describe hydrohood mm-hmm. given the fact that I was working from 19th century colonial sources and to a lesser extent the journalism of people we might call the Indian middle class Mm -hmm. at that time. So, you know, largely English educated people from, um, who tended to be from higher caste Mm or um, more dominant social groups. So given that um, it's actually quite hard to describe who the Hydra community were Mm -hmm. historically and um, and that was something I really tried to grapple with. Um, but I guess a simple answer to your question would be that the Hydra community um, are a discipleship-based community, um, so in, into which people are initiated, um, and it's structured between, by relationships between um, gurus and their chelas or disciples. Um, Hydras also have a feminine gender identity and or feminine gender expression. Um, they wear um, female clothing and adopt other sort of like feminine gestures, um, d- forms of deportment and so on. Um, and traditionally they've had a role as performers um, and collectors of badhai um, or congratulatory gifts, particularly at births and at marriages. Um, So under British colonial rule, um, the Hydra community became seen as an ungovernable population by the British. And in the... Between the 1850s and the 1870s, um, the colonial government in northern India um, determined that they should cause the elimination of the Hydra community. So... They attempted to do that in a few ways, including sort of policing the gender embodiment and performance practices of the Hydra community in order to sort of erase them as a public presence. Mm-hmm. Also through registering um, uh, members of the community um, and you know keeping track of initiations and also the, the aim there was to prevent castration. Um, the British saw... Um, castration is necessary for sort of, or is they equated hydrahood with eunuchhood, mm-hmm. right? And so they saw the um, policing of castration as a way to um, limit the um, numbers of eunuchs, right, mm-hmm. as they would have put it, and to cause eunuchs to gradually die out. Mm-hmm. So to that end as well, children were removed from the hydra community. So the book is really looking at this colonial project to cause the elimination of the Hydra community both culturally and sort of physically at least from the colonial perspective. And how and why did this become a concern for the British colonial authorities and why in the late 19th century in particular? Yeah okay so I mentioned before that the Hydra community is seen as ungovernable, mm-hmm. right? And they're seen as ungovernable in multiple ways. Um, so certainly their gender um, performance is, you know, a concern to the British, not only because it's seen as immoral, but I think also because of the ways that the British try to classify population. And so this this community that doesn't seem to fit into a binary understanding of gender are difficult to, from the British perspective, to sort of make 
legible or visible mm. to the state and, and difficult to classify and understand. But there's other concerns too. So the British see the Hydra community as being um, uh, addicted, as they put it, to sex with men and being professional sodomites. That's the colonial term. So there you have a concern both with what the British see as same-sex, you know, male-male sex. Of course, that's misgendering the Hydra community, yes. right, who, who don't have a male or masculine identity. Um, but they also see this as a problem of prostitution. Mm. And right, we know in the 1860s in particular, but really between the 1850s and 1870s, you've got a whole heap of laws passed in different British colonies that are regulating um, prostitution to um, regulate venereal disease, mm. right? So there's this concern with prostitution. The British also see the Hydra community um, as being an obscene presence in public mm. space. Right? So there's a concern with both their performance practices and also what the British view is begging. Um, and so this intersects with broader sort of governance of public space in British India and particularly the development of uh, sort of, you know, the policing of public nuisance, mm -hmm. which really consolidates in that second half of the 19th century as a way to control like marginalised people in public space. At the same time, the British also see the Hydra community as being wandering people. Mm -hmm. And that was somewhat of a misnomer. misnomer. It seems like most Hydras were primarily sedentary. Um, and that was partly because the British saw them as wandering people, partly because um, their so-called begging was sort of associated with vagrancy, oh, okay. right? Um, but this is a period in which the British are very concerned with groups called the criminal tribes mm -hmm. who they see as wandering criminals, yeah. right? Um, and they were mostly low-caste mm -hmm. groups um, and who were and nomadic groups who were classified in that way. So there's a concern with, you know, mobility and criminality. Mm -hmm. Then there's also a concern with children and childhood, right? And this idea that the Hydra community are... Um, a danger to Indian boys who the British claim they kidnap and forcibly castrate. So then this intersects with the ways that the British try to govern um, traffic in people, um, which was very uneven. Um, mm. They didn't care about slavery in a lot of contexts, and then they do in some certain contexts, including when it's marginalised people. Um, and it also picks up on this sort of colonial child-saving rhetoric, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it legitimises British colonial rule in that way. They are saving children. Mm. Yeah. So I want to look back to a point you made earlier. So, I mean, for modern-day historians and students of history, how do we make sense of groups like the Hijras, right? Mm. Where they do not map neatly onto terms like transgender, yeah. as we understand the term today. Um, but nonetheless, we rely on these analytic categories to mm. kind of define our subjects of study. I mean, how, how do you navigate that? So that's a, it's a really tricky question. Um, as you point out, transgender is anachronistic mm -hmm. in this historical context. It's obviously a more recent term. Um, it's also an identity yes. category. And... Um, so, of course, the people I'm talking about in the 19th century would not have described themselves as being transgender, yes. right? Um, that said, I mean, really, your question is, how do we translate um, these 
you know, forms of embodiment and gender identity into an English language idiom that um, makes sense to people today, right? And that's really, really tricky. So I tend to... I mean, on my blurb, it does say transgender, which mm-hmm. was this sort of like shorthand for the purposes yes. of selling the book. <laughs> the bookstores and publishers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but in the book itself, I, I don't refer okay. to the Hydra community as transgender. Um, and that's not just because it's anachronistic. It's also because it's an identity category that present day Hydras mm-hmm. also don't necessarily mm-hmm. um, identify with. And many trans women in India today also don't identify mm-hmm. as being Hydra. Mm-hmm. So... Because of that, I tend to use terms more like gender non-conforming or oh, gender diverse, which are, of course, still present-day terms, but not tied to particular identity categories mm. that I would be projecting onto these historical okay. subjects. They're kind of more analytic in nature rather than... Yeah. And I think potentially transgender is a really useful mm-hmm. analytic category in that it is describing a broad range of gender identities that don't fit within a binary understanding of gender. But because it's also an identity category, I think that's where its use can begin to, um, you know, to to sort of homogenise things in the past or to obscure historical Mm -hmm. um, ideas about gender. So, I mean, another question about method. I mean, given that the futurists must have spent a considerable amount of effort trying to evade... Mm -hmm state surveillance. I mean, how do you go about kind of uncovering sources mm-hmm. uh, about their experiences? So, um, they, yeah, so the Hydra community um, resisted this mm-hmm. colonial project to police them in multiple ways, right? Uh, keeping on the move, breaking the law, mm-hmm. um, you know, continuing to perform their sort of feminine gender and to perform in public space and so on. But among those forms of evasion and resistance was resisting colonial record keeping, right? Um, So I guess um, the way that I dealt with that was to track that history and to both in terms of the colonial anxieties about the fact that um, people who the British called eunuchs were... Mm -hmm you know, not telling them the truth or that they were hiding their property, which was registered under the Act, or um, that they were not disclosing details of their personal histories, Mm -hmm. to think about colonial anxieties, about gaps in their knowledge, but also to think about the ways that the Hydra community were evading and resisting, not just policing, but also the ways they were classified by the colonial state, the recording of their lives, and so on, right? So I guess it's you sort of need to trace that at the same time as I, you know, I was in addition looking for fragments within mm. these policing sort of records, so particularly the police registers um, of Unix. Um, I'm using scare quotes yes. when I say Unix. Um <laughs> So to use those registers for sort of fragments of people's lives that didn't fit within the dominant colonial narrative Mm. and didn't fit within the dominant sort of middle-class Indian narrative either. And so I really was sort of putting a lot of emphasis on those things that seemed not to fit, right? Um, And to 
to use them to try to get a bit of, more of a fleshed out idea of what 19th century Hitra's lives were like. Um, but just quickly there, the, the problem then is that, you know, the Hydra community was targeted by this category of eunuch, yes. but there's a lot of slippage between Hydra and eunuch, right? Mm-hmm. And they both operate as colonial categories in the 19th century yes. records. So I don't know people's own uh, self-descriptions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, and to the end, do you face any kind of ethical dilemmas? Because I think this, I mean, as a history student myself, there's a way in which this stock of method can kind of replicate mm. the regulatory case. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean, especially for, for a group that spends so much effort defying mm. definition or surveillance mm. uh, to then try to kind of uncover facts about their lives. I mean, even if they might be dead. Mm. Um, I mean, did, did that ever pose enough ethical tensions for you? Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is not just relevant to people who work on... Um, who work on gender diverse peoples, mm-hmm. right? It's also relevant to anybody who works with colonial records yes. because there's always this question of, on the one hand, you're reading documents that are, you know, absolutely structured by mm-hmm. colonial categories and you want to question or analyse, unpack those categories. But how do you do that without then reproducing those categories mm-hmm. in your own work, right? So how do I go about problematizing this colonial category of eunuch without then centering it in a way that, for example, is quite offensive to the present-day Hydra community mm-hmm. and to trans activists as well in yes. India who find the term eunuch rightly offensive, mm-hmm. right, because it's a colonial term. So that's, I think, in terms of the ethics that, you know, there's particularities here, but it is that more general question of how do you sort of analyse and problematise colonial categories without then sort of reproducing them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and do you, do you have a solution or is it just something that we all have to grapple with as we go along? I think it's something that you've got to grapple okay. with okay. as you go along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so what place then do you think colonial India takes within mm-hmm. the wider British Empire in, in relation to events in Britain itself mm-hmm. in terms of, kind of colonial sexual regulation mm-hmm. uh, and, and what is the relationship between the particular case study of this campaign against the Hijras mm-hmm. kind of the wider apparatus of sexual regulation in the form of 377 for instance Right, so there's often in sort of public discourse about mm-hmm. Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code um, and also the versions or various reiterations of um, similar laws in mm-hmm. other penal codes in post-colonial nations. Mm-hmm. This is often phrased as sort of the importation of British colonial mm-hmm. sexual norms, right, yes. or gender norms. And to a large degree, that is the case, right? There mm-hmm. is circulations of laws within the British Empire. That's that's clear. But I think it is an oversimplification to sort of imagine this colonial regulation of gender and sexuality emanating out from the yes. metropole, right? Um, for a few reasons. So, you know, first of all, obviously local contexts really shape the various sort of governing strategies, right, around gender and sexuality. So, this particular project I'm talking about in the book 
is very much a provincial project, right? It's in northern India and it's shaped by the local sort of preoccupations of that provincial government um, in this particular point in time, particularly in the 1860s, right? It's also an oversimplification because I show in the book that... um, you know, educated Indian men who did write about the Hydra community backed very harsh measures, including their banishment um, and isolation, Mm -hmm. right? So in that respect, this sort of like importation of a, or rather exportation of colonial sexual norms from Britain to the colonies doesn't really work, right? Um, So there's that. Um, But... I I think another reason is that actually a lot of the developments that I talk about in the book were broadly simultaneous with um, similar tendencies in Britain. So, for instance, I talk about how, you know, this law that criminalized the Hydra community was passed in 1871. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that year, there was, you know, a lot of press in Britain about a particular case... that was um, of um, Bolton and Park, right, who were two men who were arrested um, wearing women's clothes and who were accused of um, having sex with men, right, on the basis of their cross-dressing. And so these things are, you know, this this link between male-male sex and um, male cross-dressing, right? I mean, that, that's how it's viewed by the British. Of course, Hydras are not men, right? So, But they're viewed as men. So these things are a concern both in India and in Britain at precisely the same time, right? And there's this increasing sort of British colonial association between um, what they call sodomy and um, cross-dressing, mm-hmm. right? So this is all happening at the same time, right? So... Okay, so that's why I don't think that this sort of idea of Britain exporting mm. these norms it really works. It's not a model of diffusion. It's yeah. really more complex than that. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and local context or the politics of particular colonies is really important. Mm. That said, you do have laws like Section 377 that do sort of reappear in a number of forms and, and come from, you know, that comes from the Indian Penal Code. Um, so in terms of... so. About Section 377, what in particular are you interested in in terms of how that relates to... Mm. Well, I I suppose, I mean, so much of the discussion around colonial sexual regulation mm. has focused on laws, and in yeah. particular 377, 377A, right? Yeah. So laws against sodomy and gross indecency. Mm. Um, but in reality, we kind of know that they were not enforced uh, in, in as vigorous a way as one might imagine, mm-hmm. and, and especially in colonial India. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think one of the real contributions of your book is to kind of reorient our understanding of colonial sexual regulation away from kind of, uh, uh, criminal law mm-hmm. and to a wider range of, kind of administrative and regulatory measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so laws against wandering people or criminal rights, right. uh, as you mentioned earlier. And, and so I was wondering if we could speak to that. Okay. And, and, and so uh, how, how does that challenge the way we think about sexual regulation? Right. Well, and also gender regulation, mm-hmm. And right? gender regulation, like, and what yes. is the relationship between colonial gender regulation or the regulation of gender expression, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And 
sexual behaviours, right? And so, I mean, the particular case of this, you know, 1870s anti-Hydra mm-hmm. campaign shows how those things were often intertwined, mm-hmm. right? For colonial rulers, um, they saw gender non-conformity as very much interlinked with sexual deviance, mm-hmm. so-called. Um, but yeah, I think this case does open up um, a f- questions about beyond Section 377 and beyond similar laws, how were how was gender non-conformity policed? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, from th- my particular research, I would say it suggests that probably public nuisance laws mm. are really important and it's difficult to, uh, to uh, research that because it's often at this level of policing where yes. there weren't a lot of records. Yes. They but, survived at least. Yeah. yeah, but so there's a lot of references to um, the policing of the Hydra community, mm. but also um, a number of other groups who... Um, who didn't fit in within a binary understanding of gender or who were theatrical or ritual cross-dressers in India being policed under public nuisance laws, right? So the British are always like, should we bring these people under the anti-Hydra law? And then they're like, no, it's fine, we can use the public nuisance laws we're already using. But then we don't have a lot of actual records for the use of those public nuisance laws. So I would say, first of all, like thinking about how gender and sexuality were policed through the everyday policing of public space is really important. Um, And being on the lookout for those sources. And in terms of sexuality, too, I mean, I think, um, I think Section three seven seven also raises the question of how different types of sex crimes were, mm. because Section three seven seven was really, you know, against unnatural sex. Of course, that was the law that could be used to police um, or to, to prosecute non-consensual sexual acts that yes. were not procreative yes. sex, yes. right? And so actually there's this, you know, overlap between the policing of rape and the policing of um, so-called unnatural crimes, mm-hmm. right, unnatural offences. Um, and that positions the sodomite, so-called, as a rapist, right, which yes. is hugely problematic and has a lot of post-colonial repercussions, yes. right? <laughs> but... I think that's another aspect of the history of Section 377 and that is really important, right? Mm-hmm. That, that this is also overlapping with the policing of sexual violence in really, really tricky ways, yes. right? So I think actually moving beyond Section 377 probably goes in both those directions, mm-hmm. right? How is gender and sexuality nonconformity policed through a whole set of laws, particularly mm-hmm. in public space? And then how can we unpack the relationship between a policing of same-sex sexual behaviours and how that was then, you know, collapsed together with non-consensual um, sex and its policing. Yes. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's just something that I think is just underexplored right now. Mm. I mean, both in the historical debate, but also the public debate. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what do you think this history can kind of teach us about modern-day debates 
um, around gender and sexuality. I mean, mm-hmm. especially with events in, in India and the repeal of mm-hmm. 377. Right. So, I mean, it raises the question of why post-colonial nations have kept these colonial laws yes. on the books. Um, so, just to clarify, the, the law that I look at in the book, um, part two of the yeah. 1871 Criminal Tribes Act, it was repealed in 1911. Okay. Um, I show in the postscript, though, that it has actually, aspects of it have been reintroduced mm. into law, both in the princely states that were, you know, under indirect colonial mm-hmm. rule and post in the post-colonial Indian mm. state um, and in a number of state governments. So, so you have two things, right? You have sort of revivals of colonial laws that have been repealed and then sort of get reiterated in different ways, and you have actual colonial laws still being on the books. And I think this is often thought of in terms of like a colonial inheritance mm-hmm. or legacy, right? But I think those concepts oversimplify things. Mm. Um, for a start, there's the question of why do post-colonial nations keep these um, laws on the books, mm. right? What, why are they significant politically to post-colonial yes. governments? And I think, I mean, the, answer, the, the argument I make in the book is that in the case of the Hydra community, they have continued to be seen as ungovernable people mm. and in multiple ways, right? Um, and so it's perhaps less about inheriting colonial laws and more about how gender and sexuality are wrapped up with state visions of what a governable population will look like, mm. right? And that people who don't fit within a binary understanding of gender in particular um, are seen as being, you know, unknowable, ungovernable, problematic, mm. right? Um, so I think... Yeah, thinking about, like, what are the politics of the Mm -hmm. use of these laws, right? And how does that change over time is really important. Um, And I think also, uh, yeah, as we were talking about, looking beyond Section 377 and to really, like, local, provincial Mm -hmm. or state-level, state-government-level campaigns, right? So I talk about in the book some um, city-level campaigns against hydras where particularly like begging at traffic lights, which um, has become, you know, a, a source of livelihood for many hydras, mm-hmm. where that was targeted, right? So once again, use of public nuisance yes. laws, obscenity yeah. laws. Um, and this is all happening at the city level, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like at a national yes. level, right? So I think also looking beyond those national level debates to think about how you know, police commissioners might sort of launch an anti-Hydra campaign mm. or a campaign against immorality in a city to shore up their legitimacy or to intersect with political debates mm. going on at that time, right? So I don't know if that answers your question. No, no totally. I, I think the question of, I mean, history prompts us to rethink our assumptions mm. right, about presenting debates in terms of scale or, mm. or, or, or the instruments yeah. of, of regulation. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of this, I mean, the, the, what I suspect from India anyway, is that a lot of this regulation of non-normative gender and sexuality, it is happening at, not through, as you say, not through prosecutions under Section mm-hmm. 377, right, but rather under that sort of like everyday interactions with the police. And so mm-hmm. then that does raise questions about, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not an LGBT activist, yes. but, you know, that means that once you do decriminalise um, homosexuality or same-sex practices, um, there's so much more to do after that. Yes, like, what next, right? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, so speaking of that, I mean, what, if any, do you think is the relationship between your scholarship and activism and kind of the wider public sphere? So, I, well, I hope that this book will be useful mm-hmm. to activists in <laughs> India and, and South Asia, mm-hmm. perhaps more broadly. Um, and I also hope that it opens up or it highlights an archive that others can go back to, mm-hmm. um, possibly to question some of my conclusions as well mm. um, and to follow up threads of this that I wasn't able to do in the book. Um, so, you know, I really do hope that both at the level of, like, activism but also of, um, you know, scholarship produced by a South Asian um, transgender people as well, um, that this opens up a a discussion or highlights certain Mm. sources that they might be able to use as well. I mean, in terms of, like, my own activism, that's mostly in feminist Mm -hmm. sort of um, activism um, or I don't know if activism is really the right term, but, you know, (laughs) sort of, like, yeah. (laughs) Um, Advocacy? uh, Well, I mean, so I I volunteer for AWARE, um, but that's really in service provision, so it's not (laughs) really in advocacy, right? But I guess that's my attempt to sort of, in some small way, Mm. connect, um, you know, the feminist aims of my research to what I do in practice, right? But that's more on a personal level, Mm. I guess, yeah. And so what, what is the relationship between theory and empirical study in your work? Because I mean, mm. one of the things, I, I, as I write your book, I, I realised how committed you were to kind of, you know, creating an archivally kind of grounded study of this community, uh, whereas a lot of the literature around gender and sexuality has been vastly theoretical, mm. uh, especially in, in the last decade, the last two decades. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how do you see that relationship? So I think I think theory is important in terms of framing your questions mm-hmm. or sometimes crystallizing mm-hmm. your analysis. But I think to a lot of historians, I seem to be, you know, way too interested in like queer and feminist mm-hmm. theory and use far too much jargon. <laughs> and then to a lot of people who are positioned more within um, within queer studies, within feminist sort of theory, I feel I, I probably appear very empiricist. <laughs> so. Um, but I think it's actually productive trying to straddle those two mm. things. Um, I mean, I'm certainly like an empirical historian in that like the, the archive is where you start as a historian, right? I mean, you have questions, obviously, that are coming from um, I, both theoretical concerns mm. and I guess like, you know, in my case, more feminist politics, mm. right? But um, yeah, I... Like, I think that's where gender historians and historians of sexuality, where we do differ from Mm. other um, aspects of, you know, gender studies, queer studies, sexuality studies, is our, our, you know, our sort of empiricism, I guess. And and that does, you know, as we were talking about, there's there's problems with that too, yes. right? But I because you're using highly stigmatizing, highly criminalizing mm-hmm. sort of official records. Yes. Um, and you need but I think it's important to unpack those. Mm. Yeah. And so at NTU you teach a couple of classes, including kind of on the issue of feminism and then gender history more broadly. Mm-hmm. So what has that been like of working with synchron students on these issues? So um I mean, I teach quite small classes, right? So I can't say that I have, you know, 
a, a broad cross-section necessarily of, of young Singaporeans' views in my classes, right, because I've got a small sample size, right? Um, but, yeah, I found teaching um, gender and sexuality here really interesting and I, I think it's also been a great experience for me you know as like as a white woman who works on colonial Asia as well to really have to think about like what is my position as a person who's claiming to be an authority on this subject mm-hmm. right and um, entering into conversations with my students on occasion about that like particularly in my history of feminism course mm. you know we which I taught for the first time last semester we spent a lot of time talking about like our position in relation to the subject of the history of feminism because of course we were talking about intersectionality um we're talking about you know within sort of global feminist movements who has the authority to speak and advocate Mm. on particular issues and so inevitably it came up within the classroom and i was very happy and very glad that we Mm -hmm. had that that conversation so I would say that in terms of like enriching my my teaching, um, teaching gender history um, and history of feminism in Asia as a white woman, and you know having to really confront what is my position in relation to this mm. subject, also teaching the history of colonialism, um, you know, in um, post-colonial a post-colonial nation in Asia as well that always. Um, you know, means that my position in my in relation to my subject is very much front and centre, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it, of course, should be, for instance, in an Australian context as well, but, um, you know, and I would hope that it would be. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, accentuates it when you're in a, yeah. you know, in a different possible in their context. Exactly. And to get my students' take on that, I think, is is really valuable as well. Um, you know, we had a lot of jokes in my feminism course about me being like a hegemonic white feminist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I hope I'm not a hegemonic white feminist, but sort of became a bit of a running joke. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So one final question. What do you think you'll be working on in 10 years' time now that the book is out? <laughs> So the short answer is I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, you know, I would, I'm interested in gender, sexuality and race and how that plays into the history of colonialism. Mm. So I'm certain I will be working on, on those areas. Um, I'm interested in how gender and sexuality play into colonial governance um, at a very, like, sort of... Um, localized and everyday okay. level so I'm interested in we talked about the criminal tribes just before yes. um, so these are low caste and socially marginalized groups who were criminalized under British colonial rule so at the moment I'm working a bit on how um, gender and sexuality plays into that project and this is not you know it, this seems to be a project to control mobile and socially marginalized peoples who are viewed as being criminal ostensibly it has very little to do with gender and sexuality mm-hmm. And yet people's interactions with police, with the colonial state, was so structured by gender. Sexuality comes up constantly um, in the colonial discussions about these groups. So I'm interested, in short, in how, in in some ways, gender and sexuality is um, not just regulated, but Mm -hmm. how it, it constitutes part of colonialism in contexts that seem 
to not be overtly gendered or sexual, mm. if you know. So, yeah, not about non-normative forms of gender and sexuality in the way that, for instance, you know, the, the history of the Hydra community appears mm. to be, but actually we see very, very similar things, right? So I'm interested in that, and I'm also very interested in the history of sexual violence, um, and that is something that, as well, that um, as I became more in, engaged with um, some gender-based organisations in Singapore mm-hmm. and um, the ways, you know, I became more aware of, like, the colonial imprint onto laws surrounding sexual violence. Um, the Evidence Act. <laughs> well, and yes. outrages against modesty yes, yes, and, yes. and so on, right? So, yeah. and, and thinking about, yeah, post-colonial sort of law and sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, that's very early stages of thinking. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And to our listeners out there, that was Jessica Hinchy, an assistant professor of history at NTU. Thanks for being with us this episode, and see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode with Jessica Hinchy, consider listening to Sexing History, a podcast for the history of sexuality. To find out more, visit sexinghistory.com Yes, that's sexinghistory.com Or search for it on iTunes, Spotify or all the other places where you get your podcasts.